You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down the threats and vulnerabilities, solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We were actually following up and along with some other activity that this group, we call them Cloaked Ursa. They're also known as APT-29 Nobelium or Cozy Bear, depending on which nomenclature you're more familiar with. That's Jen Miller Osborne. She's Deputy Director of Threat Intelligence with Palo Alto Network's Unit 42. The research we're discussing today is titled Russian APT-29 Hackers Use Online Storage Services, Dropbox, and Google Drive. more dangerous APT groups that are out there. They have long been considered to be affiliated with the Russian government, um, and they are responsible for some very long-range impact attacks, such as SolarWinds has been attributed to them, and even before that, the uh, hack of the United States Democratic National Committee in 2016 was also attributed to this group. So it's one that we pay a lot of attention to. And this use and abuse of different cloud and social media hosting services, we've been seeing them use quite a bit, especially the last year or two, in an effort to try to use the reputations of those services to get past potential blocks uh, on where their malware could be hosted or pulled down from. Because as a general rule, a lot of these services are they're just they're blanket trusted if it's coming from there and everyone uses it. For so many things, and it requires a secondary component for really scanning kind of what the, the different potential packages could be. But mm. we found this follow on with Dropbox as we've been following them because they had been very active this past year. They're actually still active. There's been some recent activity uh, attributed to them even since we were talking about it. It was more of a, a natural evolution kind of as we were following them to see them abusing yet another cloud service. And we wanted to make sure that as when some other organizations discovered them abusing other services, that that was highlighted because it is something they're using to try to take advantage of those trusted reputations. Yeah. And, and I suppose just to make it crystal clear here, I mean, it's 
is it that it's difficult for an organization to block, you know, Google Drive or Dropbox or, or uh, you know, Microsoft Azure, any of these big cloud services, because they are so broad and so vast, and, and indeed folks rely on them for a lot of the business they do day to day. Exactly. And that's why we're seeing these attack campaigns, especially some that are more technical, where they can, you know, encrypt their payloads or make them look more legitimate. So that makes it a challenge even for those services to find this malware. And it's, yeah, to your point, it's impossible to have as an organization, even as a person, just trying to operate, I think, on the internet in this day and age, you have to access Google Drive and Dropbox and Azure. That's just kind of, I don't want to say the cost of doing business, but just the reality of, you know, this increasingly interconnected world. Well, let's go through what you all were tracking here uh, together. Can you walk us through the campaigns? Sure. So we've been tracking um, a couple of campaigns as well as some other organizations. Uh, and when we started pivoting around looking for some similar ones, that's where we stumbled upon um, what we found. A few weeks after another organization reported on them um, abusing Dropbox, we identified them doing another campaign. This time, this was targeting a NATO country in Europe, and they were using uh, what appears to be a legitimate invitation that they found for an upcoming meeting with an ambassador in Portugal. Interestingly, we saw them send the the same attachment twice, which isn't something we see uh Necessarily, the one only real key that this was honestly not legitimate, obviously, was there was a typo <laughs> in the email for how it would have been addressed for the actual common parlance. But we saw them still abusing and continuing to abuse Dropbox. And they're um, also being attentive to the malware that they're using that's being served. For the, one, the case that we observed in particular, the malware that was served to the victim was last modified only about two hours before the actual spear phishing message was sent to the target. Hmm. So you can see they're they're paying close attention and doing some level of customization and also making it difficult to detect these. You know, they're not letting their malware just sit out there for people to find or researchers to potentially poke at. They're being very judicious about when it's actually available for a victim to pull down. Yeah. I mean, talk about, you know, spear phishing indeed. That's that's highly targeted, it seems. Yes, and they are known for being very highly targeted. This is kind of their bread and butter, in particular with diplomatic missions. They have been targeting diplomatic missions since at least 2008. So they've had a lot of time to, to work on their social engineering. So let's dig into some of the details here. I mean, let's say I, you know, I'm someone who they're targeting here, and I'm uh, going about my day, minding my own business, and I get this email that that seems to come from the Portuguese embassy, and that's something that I think I'm interested in. What happens next? So if you opened the email with the, the weaponized attachment, it would install itself on your system, and then it would start to beacon looking for the second stage to pull down, which would be calling out to a Dropbox or a similar kind of cloud hosting provider. So there's that level still of removal where the first stage malware is on a system, but now to get the second stage, there has to be a successful interaction with the C2 server before that will then be pulled down. And we see that quite a bit 
we're increasingly seeing that across all, all attackers, but we definitely see that a lot with more espionage motivated attackers where they try to be careful that it's not a researcher like me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. they've accidentally compromised or has somehow gotten in the way so I can get more of their custom malware. They check to make sure that it's it's the victim that they wanted before serving it. You know, because the harder it is for researchers to get a hold of custom malware, the more difficult it is for us to signature it. And with some of the the really advanced groups we see, especially for their second, third stage malware, they're very, very careful about when they serve that out because they want it to last as long as possible. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash AI. So if I get that second stage sent to me, and uh, do I need to interact with it to, to get it to run, or is, is it all happening automatically behind the scenes? Oh, it's all automatic at that point. Once you open the email, they are off to the races without any help from you. And what are they after here? In this case, it looks like a typical long-term compromise for you know sensitive diplomatic missions and potentially negotiations that uh, are going on, which is a target that we have seen them go after consistently over the years. The interesting things that we have seen is it looks like we saw a bit of a shift towards some Western diplomatic missions between May and June. But when you look at the the geopolitics between May and June, that also would make sense from a prioritization and a targeting perspective where you'd expect to see an actor that is serving the Russian government targeting areas and diplomatic missions where there's a lot of, you know, tension or potential activity going on during those timeframes. One of the campaigns that you all outline here seems to be going after uh, folks in a foreign embassy in Brazil. Uh, It caught my eye that uh, I guess on the the main page of of this email, they misspelled Brazil. That would strike me as a red flag to (laughs) Brazilian citizens, but perhaps I'm getting ahead of myself. Nope. Little things like that. Uh, yeah, we just continue. And that's points to that. There are humans involved in this, right? And sometimes they make mistakes, but there'll be a little typo. It was the same with the other one where it was one little thing. And that was a key to us that, oh, that doesn't look quite right. And same if it's coming from your embassy and they're misspelling your country, or it's coming from any embassy and they're misspelling their own country. Yeah, I think that would be... <laughs> That'd be worth checking into maybe before you clicked on everything. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a fascinating contrast, isn't it? Because on the one hand, uh, we can see how deliberate and careful and targeted they are, and yet something like this slips by. Yep, and sometimes that's because there's different people uh, responsible for it. You know, the the people that are carrying out the technical 
access components are not necessarily the people who are crafting and sending the spear phishing messages. So there can be a gap in ability there. One of the things you highlight is is a tool called Envy Scout. What exactly is going on with that? Envy Scout is essentially a dropper for additional malicious files that they might want to install on a network and it can be customized to install or beacon out to install whatever the attackers want. So it's very it's a very lightweight, very small piece of malware. And it's a great way for the attackers to be able to customize and potentially change out what the actual malware is that they deliver to the network. Uh, in this case, we also saw them using the perennial favorite of all hackers, it seems these days, which was Cobalt Strike. Um, mm. And that's definitely something that's making it more difficult for defenders because we see everyone from you know ransomware actors all the way through these sophisticated nation-state attackers like Cloaked Ursa, all using that same tool, Cobalt Strike, and that from mm-hmm. a defense perspective, until we can get additional malware, another second stage, another third stage, where it's more customized to a group, this could be anyone. And it makes it very difficult for defenders to prioritize how they're going to respond to it because getting Cobalt Strike beacons from your network is becoming increasingly common. Right. <laughs> and you don't have any way of telling unless you have the additional malware. Who is this? Is this cloaked Ursa where I need to pay attention immediately because if they have Cobalt Strike on one of my machines, they could within the next 10, 20 minutes, they could own an entire like domain server. Or is this a coin miner where yes, I want to get to it, but I don't need to call people in over the weekend to do it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Are there any other technical aspects of this report that uh, you think are, are worth uh, pointing out or drawing attention to that people should know about? Uh, in particular, Cobalt Strike, that for those that are still struggling with defenses against that, it is just, it's critical. It's not something that organizations can kind of look at as something to be down the road. There's too many different attackers all exploiting it for it to not be prioritized at this point because much as The current environment is very similar to it's not really an if, it's a when you're going to be compromised. When it comes to seeing cobalt strike in your environment, it's not really an if, it's a when you're going to see cobalt strike. And hopefully it will be for something that isn't incredibly serious. It won't be a group like Cloaked Ursa, but it could be. And that's going to be a very bad day for any of those organizations. You know, usually we talk about protections and mitigations and, and we'll do that. But it, it it strikes me that when you're dealing with an organization that is this targeted, that is this specific in their targets, does that even apply? What are the odds that, uh, you know, someone at a any random organization is going to find themselves in a group like this as crosshairs? It depends on the organization. If you fit their kind of targeting and profile, then if you haven't already, Hopefully that's accurate. <laughs> yeah. And if you have, then you've already recognized how very sophisticated some of these these groups are such as this and how very quickly they can move around an environment and you recognize that it's something you need to be protected against. This is this group is another reason we really talk a lot about the zero trust concept as that term comes around again becoming increasingly critical. Because you have groups like this who are incredibly technical, who will take advantage of supply chain and trusted relationships, 
who will take advantage of legitimate cloud hosting services and social media platforms and who can get away with it successfully because they are very technically skilled. And you need to recognize that from the defense standpoint and be able to react accordingly. And in some cases, it can be as simple as, do you need access to all of these different applications in your corporate environment? With a lot of the cloud services, you can argue no. But, you know, for some of the the social camp, the social media ones where it's like we saw them abusing Trello or, you know, historically LinkedIn and Facebook have also got, been abused. Is that something that people need access to at work? You know, some of those are things that you can kind of shut down, at least potentially from a work network. But then you also have to recognize there's others who can't like Dropbox. And how are you going to make an effective business protection decision knowing that you have to allow that access into your into your environment? Yeah, it it also seems to me that, you know, cloud services like Dropbox or or Google Drive, they're practically the poster children for shadow IT because, you know, if you you get in the way of someone trying to do their job uh, and they they feel as though they need to access Dropbox, they're going to find a way. Exactly. And that then becomes its own problem of people doing it. that you aren't aware of it, and that just opens up all sorts of issues for, for a company for potential sensitivity. That's one of many reasons I've been recommending lately people try to do attack surface management scans or have a plan to get an organization, a company that can do that kind of service for you to give you an idea of what an organization's, your actual organizational footprint looks like online you know, what ports are potentially open, what isn't passed, what things like that do we discover that are tied to your organization that aren't officially tied to your organization? Or, you know, that dial-up modem that someone used 15 years ago that no one ever turned off that's tied to a printer that's still, you know, connected into the production network. Little things like that. And those are the same things that attackers are looking for when they're looking at an organization. And people need to increasingly move to viewing themselves from that same global viewpoint of what do I look like as a potential victim? What do I look like as a target from someone who can only view what they can find on the on the internet about me? And then use that to make informed decisions. Uh, every time I've been involved, organizations have invariably found a non-trivial number of devices that they didn't realize were still operational or were still connected to their network because you know, device and network management is a challenge. And the older and larger an organization you are, the more of a challenge that is. Any other recommendations here in terms of protecting yourself or or mitigating this sort of thing? The only other thing I would add, and it's not necessarily related to this, it's related to some of the things that we've seen recently in the press, is smishing and two-factor authentication are becoming increasingly critical as we see attackers working to defeat them and not sophisticated threat attackers like teenagers looking to defeat them. So organizations need to have an effective policy. A, they need to have multi-factor authentication in place, period. And then they might need to look at some other policies for how they handle if someone is spammed with requests to constantly try to authenticate. Does that trigger a behavioral rule where, you know, maybe it temporarily locks out an account, maybe it flags it things like that to address uh, what we're already seeing with attackers trying to get around some of the mitigations that we've put in place.
Our thanks to Jen Miller Osborne from Palo Alto Networks for joining us. The research is titled Russian APT29 Hackers Use Online Storage Services, Dropbox and Google Drive. We'll have a link in the show notes. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Rachel Gelfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>